Nicaea, History versus Imagination. As against biblical Christianity, all other religions seek to impose an idea on history and to realize it, or to make it real. Humanism holds to a faith in man, in brotherhood and equality. The real world and history give no evidence of anything trustworthy in man, nor any evidence of brotherhood and equality. It is the purpose of humanism to achieve these goals and to convert history to them. The essence of Islam is a political order, and the purpose of Muslims is properly the achievement of this rule of God in and through a political order. The role of Muhammad was religious precisely because it was political to the core, and non-Christian religions are primarily political and are derived from the concept of a divine political order, an order which is itself the source of morality and religion. Buddhism holds to an ultimate and proximate relativism. Since nothingness is ultimate, and all things are relative, the way is equally the concept of life and the political control of life without regard for good and evil, i.e., the political contempt of life. In all non-biblical faiths, the essence of religion is the attempt of man's imagination to oppose a pattern or ideal upon history. There is, as a result, a marked hostility towards history. History, as it comes from the hand of God, has a preordained meaning and direction, and it moves to a purpose neither decreed by man nor conductive to man's sin. As a result, man is in revolt against history. Man pits against history the imagination of his fallen heart. A major example of this war against history is Gnosticism. Gnosticism attempted to destroy the enemy, biblical Christianity, from within. It offered a place to Christ in its systems, but only to negate Christ. Thus, Scott noted, the Gnostics taught three gods, the Absolute, who revealed himself by means of Christ, the Demiurge, the maker of the world, and the world itself. The significance of this trinity is readily apparent. The Absolute and the Demiurge are opposites, which negate one another, so that the world, or more properly, man, stands forth as the one true God. No exclusive divinity was allowed to Jesus. Instead, his deity was made a deity common to all men, ideally. Thus, Marcus, a Gnostic, and a slightly older contemporary of Irenaeus, parodied the Christian creed in his circle of followers. The Marcosian creed is cited by Irenaeus. In baptism they say over them, Into the name of the unknown Father of the universe, into truth the Mother of all, into him who came down upon Jesus, into union and redemption and communion in the powers. The purpose of this creed was simply to open up divinity to man, and it affirmed the Father, but only as the unknown, and the Holy Ghost, but only as the source of deity for all, and Jesus, but only as one among many men who gained divinity. For the Marcosians, salvation was knowledge, for they affirm that the inner and spiritual man is redeemed by means of knowledge, and that they, having acquired the knowledge of all things, stand thenceforth in need of nothing else. This, then, is the true knowledge. This knowledge was not knowledge of God's revelation in Scripture. It was essentially self-knowledge. The Marcosian knowledge led believers to say, For I derive from him who is preexistent, and I come again to my own place whence I went forth. Man's true knowledge and salvation is thus to assent to his imagination and declare himself divine. Usually, however, Gnosticism did not content itself with formulating creeds. Creeds too obviously revealed its departure from and hostility to the Christian faith. It was much more effective to affirm the Apostles' Creed and to reinterpret it in terms of Gnosticism.
This, from Gnosticism on through Neo-Orthodoxy, has been a favored method of heresy. Gnosticism was in essence humanism, the glorification of man. In humanism, man makes himself ultimate by undercutting the ultimacy of God. The vaguer the doctrines of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were made, the more clearly man emerged as the sovereign and man's order as the ultimate order. In Arianism and semi-Arianism, this humanism spoke in the church using the language of the Apostles' Creed, but reinterpreting the words to give a new context to them. The subversive purpose of Arianism has been cited by Singer. Arianism was not so much the product of an unwise and misguided attempt to use classical philosophy to explain biblical doctrines as it was a deliberate effort to interpret Christianity in philosophical terms and to convert it into a kind of religious philosophy. The ultimate origins of this heresy are to be found mainly in Platonism and the philosophy of Philo, but some scholars profess to see some strains of Aristotle in it as well. The three main points of Arianism were, first, Christ was a created being, second, he was not eternally existent, and third, Christ was not of the same essence with the Father. The Orthodox faith insisted that Christ was first begotten, not made, second, begotten before all worlds, and third, Christ is of the same essence with the Father. Arius, a presbyter of Alexandria, stated his position in his Thalia, God himself, then, in his own nature, is ineffable by all men. Equal or like himself, he alone has none, or one in glory. And ingenerate we call him, because of him who is generate by nature. We praise him as without beginning, because of him who has a beginning. And adore him as everlasting, because of him who in times has come to be. The unbegun made the sun a beginning of things originated and advanced him as a son to himself by adoption. He has nothing proper to God in proper substance, for he is not equal, no, nor one in essence with him. Wise is God, for he is the teacher of wisdom. There is full proof that God is invisible to all beings, both to things which are through the sun and to the sun he is invisible. I will say it expressly how by the Son he has seen the invisible. By that power by which God sees, and in his own measure, the Son endures to see the Father as is lawful. Thus there is a triad, not in equal glories, not intermingling with each other are their substances, one more glorious than the other in their glories unto immensity. Foreign from the Son, in essence, is the Father, for he is without beginning, Understand that the monad was, but the dyad was not, before it was in existence. It follows at once that, though the Son was not, the Father was God. Hence the Son, not being, for he existed at the will of the Father, is God only begotten, and he is alien from either. Wisdom existed as wisdom by the will of the wise God. Hence he is conceived in numberless conceptions, spirit, power, wisdom, God's glory, truth, and light. One equal to the Son, the superior is also able to beget, but one more excellent, or superior, is greater. He is not able. At God's will the Son is what and whatsoever he is. And when and since he was, from that time he has subsisted from God. He, being a strong God, praises in his degree the superior. To speak in brief, God is ineffable to his Son, for he is to himself what he is, that is, unspeakable, so that nothing which is called comprehensible does the Son know to speak about. 
For it is impossible for him to investigate the Father who is by himself, for the Son does not know his own essence. For being Son, he really existed at the will of the Father. What argument then allows that he who is from the Father should know his own parent by comprehension? For it is plain that for that which hath a beginning to conceive how the unbegun is, or to grasp the ideas, is not possible. To analyze Arius Thalia, first, this statement, in effect, not only eliminates Christ, but God as well. God is unknowable even to Christ, who is the greatest of all creatures. A God who is so unknowable and who cannot reveal himself is thus an irrelevant God because of his radical incoherence. Despite all the fulsome glorification of God by Arius, in effect, both here and in his letter to Bishop Alexander, Arius is eliminating God except as a limiting concept. Dead or alive, Arius's God is irrelevant. Second, Christ is eliminated by Arius. Although called the greatest of creatures, he is still a creature. Arius's Jesus cannot know God and therefore cannot reveal him. And although Arius's Jesus or Son cannot be surpassed, i.e., his God cannot create a superior one, still he can create one equal to the Son. The door is thus thrown wide open to other sons of God to rank equally high with God and, because of their timeless in history, rank higher than Jesus with men. Thus, not only is God the Father eliminated, but God the Son. And because there can by definition be none other equal to God, God the Holy Spirit is eliminated. And this unknowable and unrevealed God being irrelevant, man stands essentially alone as his own God. Third, the Bible is also eliminated. An incoherent God cannot reveal himself. A revelation either in Christ or in the Bible is ruled out. How can a God be declared when, by definition, he is beyond self-declaration, either in his Son or his Word? Arius's God, like man, lacks full self-consciousness. His own being is full of brute factuality and replete with chaos in effect. For he is to himself what he is, that is, unspeakable. Fourth, the biblical answer to the problem of the one and the many is denied. In the triune God, one God, three persons, there is an equal ultimacy of the one and the many. Unity and particularity are equally important. Arius restated the pagan emphasis on unity, and that unity was the empire. Everywhere pagan statism found Arianism to be an ideal doctrine. And for a few centuries, Arianism flourished in Europe as the established faith. In the name of Christianity, Arianism established anti-Christianity. By professing Arian Christianity, rulers could outlaw or oppose Orthodox Christianity as subversive. Fifth, as is now apparent, Arianism was humanism and statism. It was a popular faith with rulers in that it made possible the continuation of the pagan exaltation of the state as the divine human order and politics as the way of salvation. The emperor, Constantine the Great, with his essentially Roman concern for religion, turned soon to Arianism for support. One of his wins, a bronze phallus of about AD 307-308, has on the obverse side the head of Constantine and on the reverse side the sun god. For the empire, the door was open to Jesus as the great creature of God, but also open to many other divine creatures, all serving to unify the Roman Empire as the divine human order. The Arian bishops were thus inescapably statist in their orientation and faith. 
For them, the empire was God's true order, and the emperor God's present manifestation and power on earth. At the Council of Nicaea, A.D. 325, the battle was waged over the key words, homoousian being of one essence, that is, with the father, and homoousian of like essence, the semi-Aryan compromise designed to give a semblance of orthodoxy while essentially destroying orthodoxy. Gibbon treated the difference between the positions with contempt. His hatred of orthodoxy is clearly unconcealed. In a well-known footnote, Gibbon observed, I cannot forbear reminding the reader that the difference between homoousian and homoousian is almost invisible to the nicest theological eye. It is impossible to dismiss this as ignorance. Gibbon knew what was at stake, and his allegiance was to statism as man's hope. The triumph of orthodoxy at Nicaea had tremendous importance. Schaff observed, The Council of Nicaea is the most important event of the 4th century, and its bloodless intellectual victory over a dangerous error is of far greater consequence to the progress of true civilization than all the bloody victories of Constantine and his successors. Leith's comments are also important. Theologically, the assertion that the Son is only like God undermined the Christian community's conviction about the finality of Jesus Christ. The claim that he was like God presupposed some standard to determine whether he was like God and the extent to which he was like God. It further left open the possibility that someone else more like God might appear. Christianity would only be one of many possible religions. If God himself is incarnate in Jesus Christ, then this is the final word. There is nothing further to be said. The cultural significance of the Nicene theology is revealed in the disposition of the political imperialists to be Arians. Imperialism as a political strategy was more compatible with the notion that Jesus Christ is something less than the full and absolute word of God. The Nicene Creed, in its original form, according to Eusebius of Caesarea, reads, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father, by whom all things were made in heaven and in earth, who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate, was made man, suffered, rose again the third day, ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in the Holy Ghost, those who say, there was a time when he was not, and he was not before he was begotten, and he was made of nothing, he was created, or who say that he is of another hypostasis, or of another substance than the Father, or that the Son of God is created, that he is mutable, or subject to change, the Catholic Church anathematizes. Since this was an ecumenical council, the Greek reading, we believe, was used, but the Western version was changed to, I believe. Subsequent councils and usage led to a clearer formulation at points, and to the standard reading of the creed in Western usage. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, 
by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets, and I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. As is readily apparent, the Nicene Creed is an expansion of the Apostles' Creed and a defense of the Apostles' Creed from misuse by reinterpretation. In its present form, it incorporates the work of subsequent councils, including Chalcedon. The most important later addition is the Phililoquy Clause, the procession of the Holy Ghost from the Son. The lingering elements of subordinationism were thereby eliminated in the West. The clause was rejected in the East. By means of this clause, the full equality of the Father and the Son was declared. The Trinity is one God, three persons, with no subordination of one person to another in substance or being, but only in terms of economy or operation. Arius, after Nicaea, regained power through political influence. On his recall, Alexander, primate of Alexandria, in tears prostrated himself in the sacrium, praying, If Arius comes tomorrow to the church, take me away, and let me not perish with the guilty. But if thou pitiest thy church, as thou dost pity it, take Arius away, lest when he enters heresy, enter with him. The next morning, on his triumphant procession to the church, to be formally and publicly reconciled on imperial authority, Arius stopped and left the procession suddenly because of gastric pain. After waiting some time, his followers investigated and found that the old man, Arius, had collapsed in blood and fallen headlong into the open latrine. The Orthodox party triumphantly recalled the words concerning Judas's death, who, falling headlong, burst asunder in the midst and died. Acts 1.18. Arius's manner of death was used by the Orthodox to discomfort the heretics and encourage the saints, and it was declared an act of God. The heretics preferred to forget it, and modern heretics have eliminated this and like events from the history books as irrelevant. It was, however, a providential conclusion to the great intellectual and spiritual battle of Nicaea.